All right, well, good morning. We are continuing in our study of, of the book of Romans, and today we're looking at Romans chapter 3, the latter part of Romans chapter 3. And um, there's so much here, obviously, I say that every week, I think, but uh, Romans 3 particularly is, is one of the most beautiful sections in all of Scripture. Uh, it's the heart of the gospel uh, in many respects, and so... Um, that's why we're taking a full week to, to jump into it, uh, to look into it. But um, yeah, second half of Romans today, um, it is kind of a major transition point in the epistle. As I mentioned as well, it's kind of uh, the heart of the gospel. It's really the heart of Paul's letter here. Um, it, it connects everything of what he's talking about throughout the book of Romans to kind of remember where we came from last week, um, Paul answered objections about how God will judge Israel. And he indicted the whole world under sin. That's where we kind of left off last week. There are none righteous, no, not one. And in the larger kind of per, uh, picture of what's going on, uh, it, it all stretches back to chapter 1 where Paul begins to explain um, the gospel, and that how the righteous shall live by faith. And the gospel begins, as he begins that explanation, it begins with a revelation of the wrath of God against sin. We saw pagan sinfulness in chapter 1, Jewish religious sinfulness in chapter 2, and he brings that all together with this comprehensive picture of human sinfulness in chapter 3. Well, the transition now is now, in light of these things, the revelation of the righteousness of God has been made known. We've seen the revelation of His wrath against human sin. Now is the revelation of His righteousness in Christ. And kind of uh, the thesis statement for this section today is justification by faith alone is the only answer to the problem of God's wrath against sin. We've got to understand the problem to understand the solution. And the solution now is what Paul turns to here in this section. So, um, here's our outline for today. In the first few verses, 21 through 24, uh, Paul explains how righteousness comes to us from God. If, it doesn't, if we're all sinful and it doesn't come by the law, then how does it come? And then in 25 and 26, he explains how righteousness can come from God. Like how, how is it fair? How is it just? How, how does God do this? And then he closes with some implications of that, which of course he expounds upon. Uh, specifically in chapter 4. It leads them into chapter 4. So let's begin with this, uh, these first three verses here, 21 through 24. And um, I'll just go ahead and, and read these. 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, again, as we take this statement, we've got to remember it in context. Stretching back into chapter 2, to be justified, one must be a perfect doer of the law. That Paul said, only the doers of the law will be justified. But he indicted all of humanity under sin, saying, there is none who are righteous, no, not one. That's kind of a problem. You need this to be justified, but you aren't this. He even explained that not even God's special people merited divine favor. Just because you have the law, the revelation, the promises, the worship, Israel, does not mean that you will be justified. Does not mean that you are not also guilty. That then leads to one of the most glorious statements, one of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. Um, but now, you know, it recalls Ephesians 2 when we look through that, but God, right? We were dead in our trespasses, sins, we were without hope um, in the world, we were um, um, following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, but God... Even while you were dead in Christ, raised you, uh, dead, you, he raised you in Christ. This is the same thing here. But now, in light of all of this, this, this judgment and sin and hopelessness, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Um, what he's saying is that, okay, so the law, the prophets, the revelation of God, they, they promised this righteousness of God. They pointed to this righteousness of God. But they didn't accomplish it, and they couldn't accomplish it. The only answer to God's wrath against sin is found in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. Right? You get that? So, remember he's talking to Jews who thought that they were special in some respect. And he's simply saying, your promises, your law pointed to it. Bear witness to it. But apart from the law, something else has been manifested. Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. So, uh, to break this down. This righteousness from God comes through faith. In fact, let me pull that up so I can see that. The righteous, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness from God that has been manifested comes through faith. It doesn't come through any special demographic or ethnicity or nation or covenant privilege. But it comes through faith, verse 22, for all who believe. And it comes through faith in Christ. This is the revelation of the righteousness of God apart from the law. Now, as we think about this, um, what I want to point out that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, we hear these 
these words and we kind of go, okay, that's great. Um, or that's great. We go something like, everybody knows that, right? We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's why we're here this morning. We're not saved by the works of the law. Uh, but what I want you to, to focus on here um, is how Paul points to the object of our faith that matters. Lest we get caught up in faith just being faith. Um, it's not our faith that saves. Ultimately, that's not what he's saying. It's the object of our faith. And he does this by, uh, think about this phrase here. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is, a, this is an important phrase. And what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? I kind of accidentally gave you the answer to that with my little check mark there. The glory of God is, is ultimately the manifestation of His glorious presence. Um, so for Paul to say that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, um, what he's doing, he's appealing to Adam in the Garden of Eden made in the image of God, and called to fulfill the covenant of works. And we're not going to dive into that in great detail, but it's, it's important to understanding Paul's overall argument here. And, you know, if you think about Adam in the garden, he was called to mimic his creator. You know, uh, God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Adam was called to work and labor, and enter into that rest just in, in, in mimic of his creator. He was to build and extend the garden so that it covered the globe. He was to um, judge evil, uh, the serpent at the tree. He was called ultimately to judge. That was the first test, which he failed. He was called to attain to that glory that is inherent to God himself. Of course, in a, limited, in a limited earthly physical sense. So what Paul is saying is, Adam failed in his commission. He fell short of reaching the glory of God. He fell short of the task that was set before him. And so, in this sense, Paul's pointing us to a second Adam. One who did not fall short of that glory. Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens. He's entered into the holy places, not a tent made with hands, but into the holy of holies of God's presence. Jesus Christ is the one who attained the glory of God. And so I point that out again because my overall point in bringing this out, and I think Paul's point is, is in bringing out as well, is that key right there. It's not faith that matters. It's the object of our faith. It's pointing us to the one who obeyed and suffered and died for us. And so 
as we think about some, some implications of this, um, if we don't see ourselves as falling short of that glory, um, if we don't see that justification only comes as a gift, as Paul says here, bestowed upon us freely by faith, um, then it, we might begin to see faith as a work, something that we've done. Um, in common vernacular, it's praying the sinner's prayer, or making a decision for Christ, or having some sort of emotional or uh, overwhelming experience, some sort of inner psychological feeling that we have about God. Just, I know that God loves me. And, and we base our, um, our assurance of salvation, the certainty that we are a Christian, based upon these types of things, a moment in time that we, that, that, that we experienced these things, or that time when we had that feeling, or when we prayed that prayer. That's focusing on our faith rather than the object of our faith. And, and with this, we'll be prone to doubts, a lack of assurance of our salvation, fears and worries. Am I really a Christian? Not to mention pride, if we see faith as a work, something that we've done. But faith does not save us, ultimately, in the strictest sense. Jesus Christ saves us. Our faith is the means, the hand, the tool by which we cling to Jesus Christ and receive Him. He cannot be received by good works. He cannot be received by things that we say or do. He cannot be received in any other way except for the empty hand of faith, the I've got no hope, the trust, the reliance, the belief upon who he is and what he's done. And so I bring that out because, you know, when we hear about the fact that, you know, um, we are justified by grace, that we are saved by faith, make sure that we understand exactly what Paul is saying here in pointing to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, rather than pointing us back to ourselves as if faith is something that we do, ultimately. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith is a gift from God, not a result of works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it certainly can be. Um, I, I, those types of experiences and moments are good and they're important. Um, and the, they can be good and important. Um, in my own conversion is like that in many respects. What, what, I guess what I'm speaking about most specifically is, um, you know, I, I used to hear growing up that, you know, um, a great emphasis on, on uh, praying a, a, a prayer and receiving Christ and, and then writing that date in your Bible and always looking back whenever you had doubts or fears. Well, this is when I prayed that prayer. That is basing our assurance of salvation in something that happened to us. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, yes, we do have those experiences. They're good. Those are ways in which God often works. Um, but those are not things that, that, that give us assurance, should give us assurance of salvation. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It, I think a better way of saying it, though, is uh, the, the fact that you are a Christian uh, is not because of what happened to you then or whether you believed then. It's whether you believe right now, ultimately. And um, because faith is a living faith. It's not just one time and then, okay, you know, even though it does wax and wane. And, and even still, I think of, you know, even as we, as we think about growing older and our memory fades, you know. Uh, I think John Newton said it best. I'm an old man and my memory is far gone, but I do remember this. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Um, you, you know, uh, ultimately it's, 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 it's a life of 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 believing and repenting and loving and falling and getting up again and seeing his grace and his mercy um, over and over that, that, that bears witness to um, the, the reality of, of saving faith. And so um, that's ultimately what I'm trying to, uh, I guess, hone in on is just this, this one-time decision type of mentality that that becomes the all-encompassing ground of insure, assurance in the Christian life. Um, not to discount at all that those things are real and they happen in there and they can be very important. I really like what you said about a living faith. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Faith is dead and you're looking back to that that day that you wrote down. You might want to Yeah, yeah, because a profession of faith is an expression of faith. But just a profession itself can be a false profession. Um, if we equate a profession with faith, then, then we have this decision-oriented, ultimately kind of a soft works-based, I did this, so I'm saved. Um, rather than saying, okay, that profession of faith that I made, and my continuing faith, even though it's not perfect, is all of it together evidence of that living faith. It's... And ultimately, as well, our assurance of salvation is never based upon anything that happens to us or anything that we do, but ultimately it rests in Christ alone that He, that he has us Himself. So, and in the promises of the gospel. Anybody else want to add to that? Or All right, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the man who has faith is a man who is no longer looking at himself, 
and no longer, oops, no longer looking to himself, looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. Great way of summarizing. That's not to say that we don't look back at our life and see, for example, sanctification, and this serves in some sense to um, as part of the bigger picture of, of our assurance of salvation. He's talking about ultimately in justification in salvation, we look entirely to Christ and we rest on Christ alone. I remember uh, Mike Horton being asked one time, he recounts in one of his books, somebody asked him, uh, when were you saved? And he said, 2,000 years ago <laughs> at Calvary. <laughs> and um, caught the guy off guard, like, what, what does that mean? Um, it's just a different way of looking at it. Um, Certainly, we point to a point in time when we were brought into saving faith, that we were children of wrath, and then God raised us from the dead. But ultimately, our ground of assurance, when were we saved? It's, if we're resting in Christ, we're looking to that event of His death and resurrection for us. All right. Any other questions on this section before we move to how it can come to us? We're going to move quickly. All right. So righteousness comes to us from God by faith in Jesus Christ because of His work as the second Adam. But, but, but how is this fair? How can it come to us? That's the question He now in, uh, answers in verses 25 and 26. He named Christ and then He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, how can righteousness come to us? Given that we are sinful, given that we are covenant breakers, given that we are unable to obey or atone for the things that we've done, the question now would be raised, does God justify us by compromising His justice and His righteousness and His hatred against sin? Does God just forgive and wipe away sin by divine fiat, you know, just announcing it, as some may call legal fiction? No, because if he did that, he would not be just. He would not be good. He would not be righteous. He can't just wipe away sin. He can't just pretend that it doesn't happen. He can't just decide to forgive someone because he wants to. Not only does this go back to you know, the doctrine of God and who he is and his um, eternality, his simplicity, and his perfections. Um, but it compromises his, his, his justice as a judge. Nobody would, would respect a judge who let a sinner go just because he felt bad for him. Excuse me, a lawbreaker. 
right? If, if somebody murdered your loved one and they're standing before the judge and the judge says, you know, I really want to forgive you. I'm just going to let you walk. Um, we would be filled with, with rage. I, I forget who it was. I think it was John Piper Way back in a sermon I listened to years ago, he brings up um, Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband. Um, you know, faithful to the king. The king steals his wife and then essentially murders him. You know, Uriah, at the last day, is going to want judgment on David. <laughs> he stole my wife and he killed me. That's really, really bad. How can God forgive David? Well... This is what Paul answers. Righteousness can come to us from God because God did extinguish his justice against sin. He turned it upon himself in Christ. He took it upon himself. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood. Let me ask you, does anybody know what that word propitiation means? I did a word study project on this in seminary and uh, because a lot of modern liberal um, uh, advocates or, or uh, those come from such a uh, liberal or a mainline perspective really, really hate this word and have done a lot of work to try to disprove what it means, what it really means. But let me what does it mean? What does propitiation mean, Oscar? Yep, very good. An appeasement. Propitiation is the removal of God's wrath, but, you know, we lie under God's wrath because of sin. It is the satisfying or the appeasing of the wrath of God on our behalf. Uh, the word is used in um, Greek mythology, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to, to speak of, you know, offerings that were brought to, to appease the gods. And, and that's why some people really kind of have trouble with this. They think about, um, well, does God need to be appeased? And this is kind of a pagan idea. But it, it is, God's justice is being appeased. It's because He is just. It's because He is righteous. It's not... You know, um, you know, so often with the Greek mythology, it is, is, a, is appeasing gods in, in very base, human, depraved manner, right? Um, bringing gifts that satisfy the, the, the mythological gods' um, lust or quest for power or whatever. Um, but this is satisfying divine justice. So because God's wrath against sin was appeased, appeased and satisfied in Christ. He was bruised for our iniquity. Uh, uh, he was crushed. Bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our iniquities. Bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 says. Because divine wrath was satisfied in him, his righteousness is shown. Verse 25 and 26. It's shown because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, 
Yeah, so think through this. What does it mean when he says, pass over former sins? What is Paul talking about here? In God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? What is that talking about? Anybody know? In some sense. So maybe those that were living at the time. Passed over former sins. Well, God didn't immediately judge the world for sin. Now, I want you, Paul is speaking redemptive historically here. He's talking about the history of redemption. So he's looking at history on a plane. God did not immediately judge the world for sin. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years, depending upon your view on the age of the earth, thousands and thousands of years passed before Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died. Old Testament saints received forgiveness and entered into the presence of God upon death. How is that fair? It seems unjust. It seems unjust, um, at least for a while in that sense. But in Christ, God punished those sins on the cross. So he's saying here, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In punishing Christ, this reveals his righteousness and shows that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. The cross vindicates God's justice and it demonstrates his love. So, uh, uh, the, the point in this, the wonder of the cross, God's justice and his mercy kiss. Uh, they are perfectly displayed in the same event. And it reveals to us who God is. He's a God of sacrificial love, but he's also a God of holy anger against Israel, uh, excuse me, against evil. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> he's, he's holy in his anger against evil, but he's also sacrificial in his love. And, and this is the picture we get at the cross. That's why the cross really is the center of, of uh, um, the revelation of who God is. Uh, it is the, the, the event of events that reveal to us more than anything who God is. And, th- and this has major implications because, you know, it's so easy to emphasize God's anger against evil and, and he's going to judge the world and everyone's going to hell. Um, and, and I'm so sick of everything going on in, in, in society as much as we might be. Or the other end of that would be, oh, God's love. and He doesn't really care about what's going on. And, um, you know, um, he just, he just loves everybody and, and, and just be true to your, your inner self and, and uh, he will reward that. You know, this keeps those, those two things in tension or in balance, I should say. That his holy anger against evil, evil is real and it is horrifying. Um, and there is no bend or break in his justice at all. And yet he also gives his son 
to be punished in our place so that he might be the just, just in punishing sin and the justifier to forgive those who place their faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Any questions on that section before we conclude? I know that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> so Christ is put forward to appease God's wrath. This demonstrates his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. But now they were punished in Christ. And so that he might be just in his dealing with former sins. And the justifier as we place our faith in him and receive forgiveness because Christ was punished in our place. Ultimately, that's what he's saying. All right. This leads to the implications in verses 27 through 31. Well, given all these things, then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, so if all this is true, if it comes from uh, salvation comes through faith by gift because of the propitiation in Christ, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Paul is saying you've got nothing left to boast about. Good works don't save you. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Faith doesn't save you. It's only the object of your faith ultimately that saves you. Covenantal privileges, knowledge of God's law, the worship of God, being able to, to speak and recount what God, who God is and, and, and what He demands doesn't save you either. Circumcision, being part of that visible um, uh, community of God's people, doesn't save you. He's, he's stripped away everything that we you know, might rest in having to do with us. There's nothing left to boast about. This, is, this recalls Philippians chapter 3, where Paul recounts his privileges as a Hebrew of Hebrew, as a Pharisee, as from the tribe of Benjamin. And all of those things he used to boast in. I, I say it frequently, but my Hebrew professor, excuse me, my New Testament professor, speculates that, that Paul had at least the Pentateuch, if not the entire whole Old Testament, memorized. That was, the, that was the standard of the day. And him saying that he was, you know, above them all means that he, was, he had accomplished more probably in memorization and training than anybody else. Based on how he so frequently weaves the, the words of the Old Testament into his writings... Speculation is that he had, he had done that, you know, the, the, something as amazing as memorizing the entire Hebrew Bible. And yet he's saying, all of what I accomplished is worthless, it's dung. In Philippians 3. I've got nothing to boast in. I can only boast in the cross. 
The Christ had to die, in, or uh, the Son of God had to die in order for me to be forgiven. Which isn't really, ultimately, at the end of the day, a boast. But what I want to uh, emphasize here is this antithesis. The antithesis between faith and works. And I put that phrase in big, bold graphic because it's really important. It's one of the most glorious texts in all of Scripture. One is justified by faith apart from works. There is an antithesis. Faith and works in regards to justification are opposites, even enemies. Here, I want to recall Galatians 3, 11-13. <clears throat> there Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law is not of faith. I mean, that's pretty explicit. You have law and you have faith. You have faith, or works and you have faith. They're opposites. They're enemies. They don't go together. In regards to our justification. Again, this is important for understanding the distinction between justification and sanctification. We are saved by grace through faith apart from the law. Our law keeping has nothing to do with our justification. And yet, as we will see in a moment, do we overthrow the law then? Do we just throw it out? I guess it doesn't matter because what matters is faith since they're antithesis. Well, Paul says, no, we don't. We uphold the law because the law still serves as a guide to the Christian life. The law still serves as, as, as that, that means by which we walk in obedience to what is pleasing to God. The law still has that very important place in sanctification. But in regards to justification, they are opposites. They are enemies. If you try to please God and be saved through keeping the law, you will be lost. You will be damned. i got to wrap this up. So just to... Summarize these last few verses. Well, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not also God of the Gentiles? Um, again, going back to this question that the Jews had this advantage. They had the laws and the prophets that pointed forward to this righteousness. But at the end of the day, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Old Testament saint or New Testament saint, all are saved only through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as Paul says elsewhere, circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. It means nothing but keeping the commandments of God. His point is that, look, that, that served its temporary purpose. It pointed forward to the reality to come. But ultimately, God justifies through faith. So do we overthrow the law then? Since faith is the only thing that matters, the law. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. No, that's not what he says. 
It was never meant to be a path of justification. It always has and it always will point the way to Christ, restrain sin, and serve as a guide in the obedient life that pleases God. In fact, if you look at our bulletin under the reading of the law, that's exactly what it says. The law condemns and convicts us of sin, drives us to seek refuge in Christ, and then serves, then guides the Christian life. We have to understand the proper role and place of the law. Because if we confuse these things and we bring the law into our justification of how we are saved, we undermine justification altogether. In the same respect, also be aware of those who nullify the law. You're a Christian. doesn't matter now how you live. Don't worry about that. The Old Testament, that's just, that's just to be thrown out. God, God doesn't care. That, 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 that's, that, that was the mean, harsh God. Now we live under grace and mercy. Um, absolutely not. Uh, beware of such heresies as well. Because um, that's not what the New Testament teaches. So, to bring this to a conclusion, the gospel is the end of you and me. We must give up everything that we might rest in, or boast in, or achieve on our own. And say as well, this is why the gospel, and only the gospel, can heal divisions. Racism, and hate, and war, and strife. All these things come because we boast in ourselves. We boast in our heritage. We boast in our nationality. We boast in our culture. We boast in our education. We boast in our upbringing. We boast in our economic status. We boast in our, in our good, good looks. We boast in our good works. We boast in whatever we can accomplish on our own. We, we, we serve to build ourselves up and put other people and marginalize other people, put them in their place. And, and this really is the root oftentimes of so much of the division in our world. And this is why the gospel is the only solution to such things. Because it strips us of everything that we might boast in. So we boast ultimately in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, clinging to him by faith, and he is the one who has brought new life in our hearts and lives and lives and reigns through us. This is a very practical doctrine. I'd say as well, this also frees us from fears and anxieties of a, of a works-based Christian life. The fact that you know, God is there waiting to, to you know, with his finger on a button, ready to punish us as soon as we mess up. Um, or that we haven't not done enough to, be, to really be a Christian. Well, justification by faith brings comfort uh, to the ups and downs of life. And, and assures us that our salvation rests in Him, not ultimately in how we're doing in the moment, in the week, in the day. is as important as that might be. We are as bad as the Scriptures say we are, but our justification lies in Him, not in us. And so it is a comfort in times of trouble. It's that astounding good news to lead us to repentance and motivate us to live a life of grateful obedience. Well, I've got to, uh, I've got to conclude. Um, I went a little long. I apologize. If you have thoughts or questions, just come and bring them. We've got 10 minutes before, um, before our service begins, so feel free to come up and, and uh, let me know. But um, 
It's going to be three weeks until our next uh, session. We will then dive into Romans chapter 4. So read ahead and prepare for that. But let's go ahead and close in prayer.